0: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts, and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast.
1: We have indeed a distinguished panel. Uh, Cornelia Parker, RA, is well known for her large-scale, often site-specific installations. Uh, she's an artist who engages with the fragility of existence and the transformation of matter, working with a range of, of mediums, and we'll see some of that uh, today by in images. Uh, Cornelia has collaborated with all sorts of institutions uh, such as HM Customs and Excise, the British Army, Madame Tussauds in London, and even the National Rifle Association. Uh, She was nominated for the Turner Prize in 1997. She was appointed an Officer of the Order of the British Empire in 2010. On the other side uh, of the panel, Christian Marclay is a visual artist and a composer whose works explores the juxtaposition between sound recording, photography, video and, and film. His installations and video film colleges display provocative musical and visual landscapes will also have a, and have been included in exhibitions at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, the Venice Biennale, the Centre Pompidou in Paris, the Kunsthaus in Zurich, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, among others. and Dr. Ross Holmes is a junior research fellow at the University of Oxford, specializing in modern and contemporary Chinese art and online visual culture, so I'm very happy to have her as a replacement because, of course, also especially of Ai Weiwei and his exhibition. Her doctoral dissertation examined how the discourse of Wen Ming, translated as civilization or civility, has been visualized in 20th century art in China with a particular emphasis on contemporary practice. She previously worked in Beijing as the program manager of a contemporary art space, and as the Assistant Curator for Education at the ULAN Center for Contemporary Art. The occasion for this discussion on the ready-made and destruction in art is the Ai Weiwei exhibition at the Royal Academy, which I trust most, if not all of you, will have visited by now. So I think it is the background against which we shall discuss these uh, general uh, issues. So I would like to start with uh, Ai Weiwei and mention the fact that there is something uh, intriguing about his relationship with objects, and especially objects that can be regarded as part of of heritage and that should be preserved. So I became famous with actions, what can call iconoclastic actions, so with treating objects of of cultural heritage, uh, let's say, badly damaging or destroying them. So for instance, this famous, and you have seen it in the exhibition, triptych, dropping a Han dynasty urn, of 1995, where he's shown letting an ancient vase uh, drop. And as he said, being grabbed by weight and gravity, falling to the ground and and breaking, all the while looking directly at uh, you. Or adding paint on a vase while leaving, uh, in some cases at least, the original ancient uh, decoration visible through it, but of course adding a layer to it that does not, belong or then also dripping some of uh, these ancient vessels into acrylic uh, paint and therefore making the original surface disappear. Yet he also uh, drew attention, has been drawing attention, to the rampant destruction of Chinese cultural and and urban heritage and even turning some of the remnants that he has been able to to save or salvage as as a, a sort of relics. So a okay, case so is the souvenir from Beijing of 2002 with bricks from a dismantled house in Hutong, wood from destroyed Qing dynasty temples, um, and that's an addition. And of course this sort of information comes with it, so it accompanies, and so the, informa- the knowledge of what this comes from is part of, of the piece, and you have seen a lot of it in the exhibition as, as well. He also referred to the uh, destruction brought to Asian art and archaeology by the Western powers and by the art market. For instance, here in uh, Buddha feet. Um, and you see with these fragments, supposed to be fragments, that indeed were left by people who, were, uh, who could only take the upper part of, of the statues. And uh, in a current double exhibition in Beijing, um, he reconstructed uh, an ancestral temple or hall from the Yangtze province of the early Ming Dynasty that had been dismantled following the effects of the Cultural Revolution. So he bought, I bought these um, pieces, all the pieces of this large structure from a local businessman and had them rebuilt or had the building rebuilt across. The, separ- the wall separating two galleries which had invited him simultaneously in Beijing, the Galleria Continua and the Tang Contemporary Art uh, here. So the building crosses, if you wish, uh, this bridge. So here we don't have destruction, we rather have a sort of, I would say, restoration. And something similar seems to, uh, that we could say about this major piece presented now in the Exhibition straight in which uh, these reinforcing bars uh, salvaged from ruins of the 2008 Sichuan earthquake, which had been uh, completely distorted, then were straightened by him or his uh, collaborators, and he also, where something that seems to be rather restorative. So my, my first question is to Ross Holmes, who's a specialist of Chinese contemporary art and in, in this Chinese context. How should we understand this, to me, rather paradoxical, Uh, or maybe even contradictory relationship to the destruction of artifacts and and heritage. On the one hand, a sort of avant-gardist iconoclasm, and on the other hand, a critique of the official or financially uh, speculative uh, vandalism. Is it a case of contradictions? Is it an irony, maybe? Is it an evolution in his work?
2: Thank you, Dario. I mean, I think those are questions which are very pertinent to all of Ai's work. And I think he really plays with all of those meanings at the same time. There's a very playful manipulation which happens in his works, whereby there's these multiple sort of layers of meanings which I think he also tries to evoke. Um, and I think an underlying sort of thread which runs throughout this constant series is the whole idea of, you know, what do we value and why? Who gets to assign value to certain objects and who gets to authorise that? And I think, especially, we see that in his ceramic works. You started off by showing I dropping a hand in a urn. and this is sort of seen obviously as a very sort of provocative, iconoclastic act. The very fact, as well as you mentioned, that his, his gaze and his facial expression is exactly the same from the first shot to the last shot, so that whatever sort of response is in the viewer's mind is, is left purely to the spectator. If you sort of notice this, he reduces this act to almost being something extremely ordinary. Now this whole series, which obviously began whenever he returned from New York to Beijing, about 1993, he began to produce a series of ceramic works, of which the first one was called Coca-Cola Han, which he showed immediately afterwards. So these ideas of sort of value and authenticity, you know has this work in some ways been sullied by the incorporation of this sort of logo, which has been emblazoned around the vase? Or has it been in some ways sort of its value has been elevated through the act of doing this? I mean many of these artefacts perhaps are not necessarily of museum quality and yet they are definitely significantly imbued with sort of um, material and cultural value. Um, And I think the interesting thing to note about these ceramics as well is that they really form part of the canon of the beginning of Chinese ceramics and form part of this sort of Neolithic societies who are credited with forming the origin of Chinese civilization. And this is a history which can therefore said to stretch back 5,000 years into the past. And this is a a sort of number which is constantly even invoked by the current government in many ways, to sort sort of, you know, that proclaim themselves therefore as the inheritor and the protector of this history and this tradition. And they therefore use that as well, you could say, to sort of buttress their own claims to authenticity and legitimacy. So I, I think, is in many ways sort of asking us to question who gets to own that history, that ownership of meanings. Do they get to own it or do I get to own it by by destroying this artifact or by repurposing it? And I think he constantly asks the viewer to really think about their own cultural conceptions, about where those come from. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of sort of questions about are these really authentic objects that he destroys, you know, people, yes, so I can, there's an interesting incident which actually happened um, quite early on, actually, in Ai's career, so this was in 1998, he participated in an exhibition in New York at Max Protetch Gallery, which was called Double Kitsch, and it featured about the work of about nine or 10 Chinese artists. And I contributed to that exhibition with this work, which is called Coca-Cola Tang from 1997. Again, it's one of these sort of Neolithic vases which he inscribed with the Coca-Cola logo, which you can see here. Now, at the conclusion of the exhibition, the gallery actually shipped back Ai's work to Beijing with the accompanying statement. I'm afraid maybe you can't read this, I'll try to read it out. So basically it said, "Um, Dear I," oh no, this is actually to the gallery owner. During shipment back to Beijing, the pot was actually broken because they sent it via FedEx. Yes, exactly. So it was sent via FedEx. Um, It got broken in the process. Of course, then I obviously complained and sort of said, what are you doing? And they said, well, we felt that we were essentially burdened with the transportation of a work which was not purported, which didn't purport to what it was actually, what it was, right? They said, this is actually, it's not a real pot, it's fake. And therefore we felt that we were misled. Now, I obviously, as you can imagine, was rightly felt extremely angry at this. Um, He, therefore, there was a sort of a torrent of communications that went back and forth between um, himself and the gallery in um, New York. And they sort of said, well, the insurance company is not going to pay for this. We've ascribed it a value of $50. Yes. So then I had it actually shipped to Oxford and to undergo a thermoluminescence test, which is actually used to verify how old these pots actually are. And the conclusion was that it was actually 800 years older than I had originally thought. So it was, in fact, even older than the Tang dynasty. So you can imagine then he felt, obviously, rightly justified in doing this. Um, and he actually re-exhibited this work almost 10 years after that original exhibition. This is from an exhibition um, in Beijing. And you can see, actually, the vase, which is put in this small box. He actually had the missing pieces sort of glued back together. And he put all the documentation, including the faxes from that event, are sort of displayed alongside it. So I think he's really about you know turning these ideas of authenticity of value on their head, and also playing with these dichotomies of you know how is value ascribed by whom? You know by the art world? By you know is it the gallery that decides that they are the ones that can you know that get to ascribe that value? So I think that's why you know it's very interesting provocations. Well, thank you very much. I would gladly also
1: ask Cornelia and Christian um, how they feel about, uh, and if they have any observations about eyes, way of dealing with objects and, and of using and reusing and recycling, in a sense, objects. Um, some of which are more or less old, some which were uh, purposefully um, dis- discarded or, or destroyed, um, some which he had actually made, but after using ancient traditional techniques. And also, do you think that the term, ready-made, which was proposed for this discussion is it appropriate in that case um, or not? So, obviously, I use the found object in
0: my work a lot. And um, you know, Vonne Blazewig wrote this great um, essay for me for a publication I had about the, the idea of the ready made versus the, the uh, found object, you know, and her you know, a discussion of the, that subject was that um, the, a found object is something that's had a history. The ready-made is something straight off the shelf, new, you know, like the you know, Duchamp's urinal or something you can go and buy that's mass-produced. So um, um, I think, you know, for me, I always thought I was interested in the found object rather than the ready-made, although I'm a huge fan of Duchamp too. Um, so, so he's obviously using these found objects which have all this cultural baggage attached, whereas the ready-made... Has already, it's already not yet got cultural baggage attached. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of fresh off the shelf, as it were. So, so I mean, you were saying earlier about it's a hundred years old. The idea of the ready-made, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. and and now we're very used to seeing found, you know, found and new objects in work. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I think you know using these these things like temples and uh, pottery things that are actually undervalued in china and now i think it's going the other way isn't it i think chinese are suddenly realizing now they they're acquiring lots of wealth that a lot of this stuff that they weren't interested in 20 years ago they're really uh, rushing to the auction houses to to buy up so so i had obviously bought these things when they were reasonably cheap for him to be able to destroy or um you know, um, get get, get vast, vast quantities of wood from temples. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I think it you know, it parallels quite a lot of things. I've been doing my own work for the
3: last whatever years. You know, in New York, uh, there's antique shops full of this stuff. Yes. Uh, so it's it's almost like this, so much of it. And I don't know much about pots, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, the 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 fact that there's this large quantity of them available makes the act of destroying it less destructive maybe, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think uh, perhaps in China too, where things are still being assessed, you know, about the cultural revolution and where these artifacts fit into their history and and, and them being undervalued. And I mean, um, is it in J- uh, Japan where they destroy things all the time and move temples around? Well, uh, there,
1: there, is, there is the famous case of the is- Issei Shinto shrine, which is reconstructed every 20 years. Now, the question of how typical is that is a bit another one, because they do also keep and preserve things. But there is this idea that has been used a lot of an East-West opposition around this issue. The West valuing, supposed to be valuing more material authenticity, that is keeping the stuff itself from the past. The idea of John Ruskin, that the value of a building is in the last inch of its surface. And if you take it away it's gone, and therefore restoration is the worst destruction yeah. that there can be because you replace a building with a false description of what it was. Huh? That's Ruskin's idea. And the East would be on the side of preserving not material authenticity, but uh, the way you do things, the knowledge of how you do it, and and the form, which would be the case in the East Ray Shrine. I believe that things are much more complex because wooden architecture in the West, for instance, is only exist further because it is constantly being reconstructed and actually the same is true of of stone architecture to a large extent. But indeed, but there is this, this question of how, where does authenticity, which I think is also quite, quite uh, important. Maybe we could indeed come to this question of the, of, of the ready-made and then I think we'll, we'll come indeed to the, the works you want to show us but I wanted to ask um, Christian who is because he's also working with music and sound and sound is reputed, although it has material supports of all sorts instruments, uh, musicians, a room, uh, a record and so on but sound itself, or music itself, is regarded as, as, as immaterial. So, can one destroy it? Can one damage it? Can one break it? So, what is your answer? It
3: isn't immaterial anymore, um, in the sense that we found ways to record music, um, and um, through records, for instance, uh, vinyl records, are before that, you know, um, even more fragile materials, um, and strangely enough now music has become uh digital and is in a way more immaterial uh than it was so it's a lot harder to to break an original so um the the idea of something uh original is is a fiction in a way um um but uh, i you know you you what you were talking about made me think about musical instruments which is also uh, quite interesting in in uh, uh, collecting or preserving trying to preserve these uh, ancient instruments uh, there's there 's kind of two schools: one is you know you you preserve them you don 't touch them, uh, you dust them once in a while, uh, and another is uh, you actually play these instruments because they they have to be played to to stay alive um, I think a lot uh, that 's maybe a nice image to to um, to put uh, on top of uh, Ai Weiwei's work because um, he's he's full of contradictions um, and I I think of him more as someone who's trying to preserve uh, his heritage um, and um, you know sometimes you have to do destructive acts to uh, make people pay attention um, it's uh, maybe a desperate act. Um, but in in the end uh you know you 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 get attention i think in the show the the piece that moved me the most was the one uh, with the ray bar where he's you know tediously um straightened out these these bars um which um is 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 a very absurd kind of uh, gesture uh it's it's the opposite of the ready made uh in in a sense uh And it's also looking at at a material in architecture which is completely hidden and that we don't pay attention to. It's sort of um, this inside structure, this skeleton, that keeps everything together. Um, And in the case of these schools that were destroyed by an earthquake, uh, these uh, were uh, underused. Um, So there's a nice um, contradiction um, there.
0: Um, so, I like the idea that he, you know, they didn't use enough of them and mm-hmm. and they became, you know, mangled by the pressure. Um, and then he's, what he's done is made them fit for purpose, but through a very violent means, you know, each each of those bars has had 200 blows to, to make it straight again. So, it's all this energy that's gone into unbending what nature did in seconds, you know.
3: I mean, this issue that you between... the difference between the ready-made and the found object, in a way, um i've become known also for breaking things but breaking records when i was uh starting uh my career as a sort of dj uh which i don't like the word but um mixing records and and really uh destroying uh the vinyl as a way to react against uh, this idea that uh something so free and so immater- immaterial would then become frozen and turn into an object. And uh, I've always had an ambiguous relationship to recording, because somehow we want to be able to document certain um, performances and and, uh, sound um, performances. And at the same time, I want to honor the people who uh, witnessed it live, because the thing about music for me, which is essential, is is a social act. You know, it's something that you share with a group of musicians, but also with an audience. Um, then, as a recording, it becomes um, totally out of your hands, and and it becomes more of a private. Uh, object that one uh, listens as they wish or...
0: What do you think about all the illicit tapes that were made? You know, I was thinking of Bob Dylan's concert where somebody shouted out... Um, was it a heretic or... You know, uh, um, I forgot what he said. What did they say? <laughs> but it was amazing to capture that and that was you know, a really iconic moment. But there was somebody there recording that and that, mm-hmm. a lot of people can't be there, you know, because they weren't alive then. But what do you think about those kind of live tapes?
3: Well, yeah, they, they, they haven't, you know. I mean, we, we all depend on recordings, um, visual and, and um, sound recordings. Um, but uh, there is something magical about sound being ephemeral. And uh, I think I was always attracted to that dimension. So I felt the recording was limiting. Uh, yet, I found that by damaging this fragile surface of a vinyl, uh, that I could open up uh, endless possibilities, so in fact, in the destructive act, there is a creative act as well. A scratch on a vinyl becomes can potentially become a rhythm uh, in the music so uh, it, it, the work was more um, about you know building uh, a new sound vocabulary out of this uh, destruction of of this. Multiple and so in this case it's very much a ready-made because records are usually uh, pressed in in the thousands Um, and um, yeah but um, Mm -hmm. the the uh, the scratch on a record is unique. I did this piece in 1989 um, called Footsteps uh, where I recorded my footsteps myself walking in the studio and then made a one-sided record. Uh, twelve inch record of this recording, which would, was then glued to uh, the floor of a gallery as, as a tiling, and people were invited to walk on them uh, I yeah. mean this is not exactly the same these okay. are these are records that are uh, found records, hmm. uh, but I had made a record specifically to be um, in a similar installation, so you have to go back i mean today records um, are not the medium of choice, so Um, Most people are not familiar with the handling of records and how fragile they are and the idea of actually stepping on a record uh, is not as destructive today as it was in the 80s. Um, and that that's an interesting... Um,
0: I, I loved it d- when records were made of shellac, yeah. which I think is a kind mm-hmm. of secretion from a beetle. So mm-hmm. I like the idea mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you're listening to mm-hmm. a diamond on top of... Yeah. And vinyl. You know?
3: Vinyl was made out yeah. of uh, you know, oil, which is deteriorating uh, matter, uh, maybe skeletal. It was really about mashing up as much different styles of music together and not uh, there's, there's no hierarchy between, you know, pop music, classical music, or whatever. Uh, it's all material out there on a piece of plastic that uh, was for me very cheap to use. You know, I never spent more than a dollar on a record. Mm-hmm. This stuff was made with junk, maybe to mm-hmm. some it's still junk, but mm-hmm. uh, to me it's, you know, part of the creative process.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it also raises the question of how far, what is the limit between Extending the uses or putting to unexpected uses, objects can be musical instruments or it can be recordings, and actually damaging them or, or destroying them. So maybe I'm reminded, and we could move to uh, the first work that I saw by by you, uh, Cornelia, which is a bit further, uh, and that was in. It happened to be in uh, Fort uh, Fort Worth, uh, Texas are uh, in the Museum of, of Modern Art. Glimmering objects floating in space, suspended in, in the air, like a sort of, of road, if you wish, and all of them symmetrical. Seen from closer, these objects turned out to be made of, of silver, silver plates, silver cups, and, and, and um, candlesticks, and so on, visibly crushed. The result emphasized their symmetry. By the way, the piece uh, is called Rocha. As I said, after a first sight of beauty, there was this sense of violence also, and have something have been uh, really treated in a way that it was not intended to be. So I found that tension interesting, intriguing. So I wanted to ask you, and, and um. how, how important is the violence in this? <laughs> well, it's very important. I've got more refined over the years with my violent acts,
0: and this was a, a later silver piece which I used a 250-ton press to squash it, which meant I had to squash very um, nicely made objects because the, the soldiers wouldn't cope with, you know, um, the pressure. So um, so I had to really... And then also, I had to squash a lot of things to get symmetrical things. Most of the oh, things I squashed so aren't symmetrical. So then so. there
1: was a re- refuse of the Yes, uh, yeah.
0: um, but, th- you know, my earlier sort of process um, <laughs> was a, a bit more crude, which was... That was a steamroller, which was only 10 tonnes. So um, mm-hmm. after doing this piece, which now... Uh, I mean, in 1988, the squashing happened in 89, 88, 89 was this piece, so it's quite old. But this is now owned by the Tate, and now the Tate have got all these fragmented objects, um, which I, you know, were all very cheap and nasty, actually, but they broke up with the 10 tons. And now they've made beautiful, you know, mm-hmm. velvet-like drawers for all these objects, all these fragments. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. Um, but that the, early, the piece you saw in Fort Worth is a later piece where uh, it was quite a long time when I didn't squash anything. I was doing, plowing through all kinds of other destructive uh, ways of making things, but then I was drawn back to squashing, and uh, it's somehow one of my favourite activities.
3: The fact there's something so childish and so pleasurable <laughs> in destroying something. I mean, we shouldn't forget that aspect of it, you know. Um, um,
0: yeah, I, I squashed a load um, two brass bands worth of instruments, and one was um, for the V&A in 2001.
3: Um, without the players. <laughs> without the
0: players, yeah and I used the lifting mechanism of Tower Bridge to squash. Um, You know, they had these 20-ton pistons, and they... So it was for the British galleries of the the V&A, so that's why I used this famous British monument, you know, the the, the bridge. And I thought at first I was going to squash them between the... um, the bits of the road when they came down, but that wasn't very practical. <laughs> but the instruments I squashed were, from, they were clapped out wind instruments. They had a lot of breaths go through them. Um, I bought them from the British Legion, from, you know, Colliery bands and, um, you know, um, Salvation Army, but they were defunct. Um, But I like the idea that it had all these breaths through them and then I'd just squash the last breath out of them. And the V&A at the time had this display of musical instruments which were all beautifully carved and inlaid and harpsichords and violins. And they also had lots of ceiling roses which had musical illusions, you know, harps and violins and all the rest of it. So I created this floating ceiling rose with a fanfare of squashed instruments and it was called Breathless.
1: Could you record the last breath, actually?
0: Um... I could have done, but um, I didn't. But uh, Michael Nyman, <laughs> who's yeah. a wonderful musician and composer, he made a piece um, for the opening of the V&As at this, this, you know the, the British galleries, and, and he made it based on my brass band, um, squash brass band, so it's a nice. And there was a brass band playing his piece underneath it the night of the opening. So, But the brass band uh, community seemed to really like it, which I liked.
3: Was it organised the way the band would be uh, displayed, or...? Well, I, I, no, it was
0: formally, you know, the big instruments, the medium instruments, and the small instruments. So it was to do. It was by size. It's like my exploded shed. You know, small objects, medium yeah, objects. Yeah, yes, um, you know, my shed blown up, yeah. um, um, and this army <laughs> blowing up the piece for me. Um, but that piece was organised, formalised by small objects near the light, medium objects. And uh, big objects, and then the wood, and I was trying to put the shed back together again. So a bit like I way way with um, destroying something, and then re- reconstituting it. Um, but the shadows from the light bulb created the explosion again, which is something I didn't really realize was going to happen. So that was a really nice accident that happened. Um, so the so it's a formalized explosion, but the shadows makes makes it, the the explosion happen again.
1: Um, I like your idea of the destroying, I would say, innocent activity. Or at least, I mean, it has this childish, this childish, this playful side to it. Um, it's all, also sort of a way of knowing, because you know how something is made when you break it, and, and you see how it can react and what it can do, something you had, was not made to do, but it can do it also. Um, Yet at the same time, of course, there there can be some more uneasy, uh, unheimlich side to that because of the violence, because of the danger. Um, And I remember, for instance, Christian, I think we have um, in your, there are two videos I was reminded of, one which you show that was included in the uh, recent exhibition at the Hirshhorn Museum in uh, Washington DC called Damage Control. Destruction in art since the 1950s, and that's um, guitar uh, drag of, of 2000, and where one sees a guitar, uh, you'll correct me, but it's, it's been slowly destroyed and, and very noisily actually destroyed by being dragged behind a car, behind a, a truck, or a pickup truck on the road and then uh, out of the road in Texas, and, and that uh, referred, among other things, but through the murder of James Bird Jr. in Texas, in, in a rather uh, similar way. So once you know that, of course, it, it's you can't just enjoy the strange and, and also well uh, aggressive music. And uh, another later uh, video called Solo of 2008 um, does not involve destruction. It's different interaction with the and unexpected, through uh, interaction with an electric guitar. It's a, uh, a woman, uh, played by a tree car, uh, making love, uh, in quite impressive way, uh, with a Fender Stratocaster. <laughs> it's also very noisy. Um, but, in, but what what they have in common, I, I believe, uh, is that the the guitar there, and maybe it's not by chance, that it's a musical instrument which comes alive, at least when it's played, is treated almost as a person. I don't mean to say it's a substitute for a person, but certainly it's almost a person, and that's what often happens in cases of iconoclasm, including those, some of which we are uh, witnessing uh, currently, is that their importance, the, the charge, that, uh, is that they are almost as important and as persons. Sometimes they are mistreated as persons would be, and that happened already in the Reformation, that happened in, in, in many times so uh, so it's also our relationship with objects that is at at play, so I don't know whether you would like to add something to it about yeah, this, I or...
3: mean both of these pieces play on the fact that a guitar is very anthropomorphic, yeah. so you know it has a neck, uh, it has a body um, it, it, often uh, musicians might give their guitar a human name um, but the interest in, in making sounds with, with guitar, there's, there's also this whole tradition of how uh, to mistreat an instrument, to try to expand the idea of the instrument and, and to uh, make it sound differently. Um, so, um, you know, of course, there's the destructions of guitar in, in rock and roll, which um, have become iconic. And if you don't break a guitar, uh, you, it's not a rock show anymore. Um, but, um, but this was uh, apparently a, a reaction to those, these um, big outdoor concerts where you had to uh, exaggerate the movement and, and make things more spectacular than they were. I mean, if you think about it, a guitar player makes these small finger gesture, it's all very miniature and amplified to a very loud sound. Uh, but I, when, when I started making music in the late 70s, uh, I was very attracted to uh, unusual guitar player, like one of the um, first uh, guitar show that really impressed me uh, was by Fred Frith, a British guitar player who I saw in New York, who was playing his guitar flat on a table, and doing all kinds of things to it, um, at some point drilling a hole in, into the body of the guitar. Uh, so it was this this interest in how, how to, and and I have throughout the 80s performed with many musicians who are always trying to discover a new way to uh, play their instruments. Um, so th- th- these projects come out of that as well. Um, uh, But of course they have other layers uh, and uh, I think, um, you know, one thing I just thought about right now is that both Cornelia's um, exploded um, shack or or shed, sorry, uh, came out from a residency you had in Texas and it didn't. No, I made it oh, okay. in
0: 91, that piece, but I did do a residency in Texas. Um,
3: but you, didn't you, did, a, you did something about a, yeah, a burnt church, no? Let
0: me just show you quickly what I did in Texas. Um, I but, was, uh, but, but, but yeah, I did a, this piece. This one, which was which a burnt a, church. Which, which was a white congregation church that had been struck by lightning and burnt to the ground. And I went out and collected the... The charcoal remains mm-hmm. of it, uh, but in Texas, and um, and I talked to the minister about it, and, and he said, oh, well, I think it was an act of God. Oh, no, I said it was an act wow. of God. And, uh, you know, no, I said, isn't what do you think of this being an act of God? You know, what does that say? Uh, and he said, oh, I, I think God wanted me to have a better church. <laughs> uh-huh. Did he do? So yeah. he burned it, makes it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that makes him suspicious For his insurance, yes, but then, but then, um, but then, yeah. very quickly after that, after mm. that, some guys turned up in some pickups and they were measuring up the church and then they said that they were church builders and they were going to rebuild the church. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, this is very speedy, you know, it's only just burned down. And they said, and, and I said, well, you know, that's amazing. You they said, well, we go all over Texas building churches that are burned down. I said, wow, do they get struck uh-huh. by lightning all the time? They said, no, they usually are black congregation churches that are burned down by arsonists. And that happens all the time. This was 19... 19- Ninety-seven,
1: and so they uh, were on the heels of the arsonists.
3: These these builders.
0: Yeah, well, they no, no, they were good people who wanted okay. to rebuild the. So these that's were that's these were not. Just asking. No, that's
2: they that's they weren't asking.
0: getting yeah. paid. They were volunteers. So, so it they wasn't
3: a, a racist act. This
0: one wasn't, but this one was. The next one is this other piece. Um, So in 1997, I did a church struck by lightning, very naive in Texas, Mm. thinking this is a place where Mm. things get struck by lightning, not thinking that things Mm -hmm. got burned down by arsonists. And then, um, so these guys said, well, we go around all the time that it's happened. So I put a Google alert on when I got back Mm. to Britain on burnt churches, and I watched with horror as day in, day out, year in, year out, in the southern states of America, churches are being burnt down all the time as Mm. a racist act. Mm. And I was really horrified. So i meant to do a diptych to the piece called Mass. um, And this is Anti-Mass, which I made in 2005, which was a church from Kentucky that had been arsoned by... um, Hell's angels, who used to ride up on the porch of the church mm-hmm. when they were trying to have services, mm-hmm. and in the end they they'd burnt the church down. Mm-hmm. So there was mass and anti-mass. Mm-hmm. Um, well, curiously has- enough, talking about um, things like institutions mm-hmm. buying work, the the original piece had been by bought by Phoenix Art Museum, and I thought they might want to buy this one to go with it, mm-hmm. <laughs> as, a, as it was a diptych. But they didn't. You know, uh, they felt it was too politically. So, um, the museum in De Jong in San Francisco bought it instead and they were much more liberal kind of... Yeah. So, it's kind of it curious also, to do as a politics... Kind
1: of, uh, from, from the place, right. They were yeah. not affected in the same way, I would imagine. Well, I, mean, it,
0: yeah. I mean, I think they're most probably not yeah. dissimilar distances yeah. apart, yeah. Yeah. but politically, yeah. they huge Politically,
1: politically.
3: Yeah. right. Um, but no, I just yeah. thought it was an interesting parallel with guitar drag, which was a reaction to uh, um, a, a racist crime in Texas. Um, where James Byrd was uh, dragged to his death um, by two white supremacists. Um, yeah, you know, Texas uh, does. <laughs> <laughs> I married a to lot Texan, by the way. <laughs> <There we go. laughs> They're um, not all bad.
0: No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I think we could go on uh, for, for the whole evening, but we have come to uh, an end to this discussion. So thank you very much to all of you, and thank you to the audience. And we'll call you today.